Hey everyone, back again. Now we're starting on, this is part two of four of the episodes I'm doing on the first lecture from the Collège de France, the lecture on, uh, on the will to know. So this episode, like I said last time, it's going to start on week 13, and then it's going to move into week three and week four. So before jumping into it, hi again. I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, they might get a kick out of it. If you found this on a podcast platform, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube. If you're tuning into this now, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Go and check out part one first. Go check out my 300 episodes I already have up. Cover a pretty wide range of topics if you're interested in that. And it's all free. I mean, that's pretty cool. If you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously... No pressure to do that. Take care of yourselves first. And um, if you want to follow me anywhere than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you want that kind of content. So yeah, let's jump into week 13 here, which took place at McGill um, back in the early 70s, which would have been cool. I live in Montreal, so I mean, that's I have that kind of association with McGill. I've never attended McGill, but anyways... So this lecture on week 13 focuses on Nietzsche, and it's important to present this now because the end of the last episode mentioned Nietzsche briefly, and in the text it says, you know, for more on this, go just jump to week 13. So I'm just following along with that. Now, here we're going to talk about Nietzsche's relationship with truth and knowledge, Specifically, that his his like primary text being truth and lies in an extra moral sense or non moral sense, depending on which translation, plus other ones, and specifically the way that Nietzsche imagines the relationship between truth and appearance. So, in truth and lies, in an extra moral sense or non moral sense, Nietzsche suggests that knowledge was invented, meaning. For Foucault, it is not innate in humans, and Nietzsche says that it was something like it was like two lions at the edge of history, edge of the universe that invented truth or something. There's some image like that that he gives us, which is very cool. It's a proper Nietzschean fashion to use very, what would appear to be very literary ways to communicate philosophical ideas. Part of his brilliance. Now, for Nietzsche, there is no knowledge instinct for uh, hu humanity. You know, because he says that knowledge was constructed, it was it was invented at some point. It didn't just we we aren't born with this idea of knowledge. It's not embedded within us. We are formed by many other instincts as well, of which you know, need, uh, knowledge is just one, if if we can even call it uh, an instinct. And we it, knowledge therefore won't have a specific shape. It's going to be imbued within different instincts, different drives, different desires that are going to deploy it in different ways, if, you know, even, even if it can be said to exist there in any measure. So it's not as though there's going to be this like singular thing called knowledge that we pursue or that we possess. Now, because knowledge was constructed, it does not supply us the opportunity to uncover secrets of the world or of the universe. It is a construction can't actually penetrate into the deepest, darkest recesses of the human mind, of uh, the universe, or of the world, because the only way that we really measure knowledge, deploy knowledge, understand knowledge, is through language. And because it's always through language, it's always going to be mediated by an incredibly human construct. 
that is language and words. When I say the word tree, for instance, each one of you listeners have probably conjured up the image of a tree in your mind, but no two of your trees are going to be the same. The same applies to knowledge. If I give you the word knowledge, each person has a very different understanding of what that term is and what it is capable of doing. We are therefore inhibited, we are limited by the very fact that knowledge and all of the value we attribute to it is limited by the fact that it only exists within language. Which isn't to say that it isn't meaningful. It can be a driving factor for many different instincts, many different drives. It's not as though it's not meaningless, like words can still very much have meaning. But the idea that it somehow allows people to access, you know, secrets of the universe or of the mind, like I've already said, attributes it way too much credit in what it is capable of doing. So knowledge for Nietzsche is more uh, is more like a trickery and and malice rather than uh, this this like exalted uh, method to pursue the secrets of the universe. As being more like trickery and malice, it sees the world as appearance. And goes beyond that appearance, not to find a stable truth, but instead to find its secret, which actually ends up being another appearance. So imagine a situation in which you're in a room and in walks someone wearing a mask. To the old philosophers, the truth would be that we just need to lift up the mask and we'll see the true person underneath. And this would be the idea, maybe, you know, we think of Plato's cave, for example, we just need to exit the cave, stop seeing the shadows, and see the true thing, and we're going to, therefore, arrive at the truth. We'll open ourselves up to the spectral light of truth. Now, Nietzsche says, on the other hand, that if someone walks in with a mask, and we take off this mask, we aren't confronted with the truth. We are confronted with another mask, and that is because we all wear masks. I mean, the way that this person is going to present themselves in a very superficial reading of Nietzsche, how this person is going to present themselves, how they have groomed their hair, how they have uh, done their skin care. I mean, at a very superficial level. But the very attribution of value or significance to someone's face already implies a distinct number of historical uh, historical appreciations of that part of a body as being the sign of what someone is, you know, like the eyes are the window to the soul or some something silly like that. So Nietzsche doesn't view the face as being the truth of that person, but rather another facsimile, maybe another simulation, another appearance, another mask that all that we've used, all that we've done in our deployment of truth in taking off the mask is found out that there's another mask. Now, Nietzsche doesn't want to then say that knowledge is useless. He's saying that this is actually a source of potential, a source of possibility, in that we are able to then put it into play. And play, I, I like the word play because it emphasizes the lack of seriousness that Nietzsche would ascribe to knowledge. It is a very serious thing. It can be used seriously. But what is what it is ultimately capable of doing is only affirming somebody else's power where the real concern in that moment hasn't so much been to try to find the truth of the person who was wearing the mask but why is someone so obsessed with taking the mask off 
what is actually happening in this moment is a desire to unveil, to make apparent, to make visible, to put under one's control somebody else's face. And as long as they're wearing one mask over another mask, the one mask that we view to be the true mask, which we, we tell ourselves is not a mask, as long as their person is sitting there with a mask on, we feel like we do not have the power to control them because they're anonymous. And this, you know, this is an idea. We can certainly find kernels of this in Deleuze and Guattari, very much so in Baudrillard. Uh, but in any case, we have these varying ideas about knowledge and Nietzsche's specific attention to it. So knowledge can actually give birth to new appearances that can combat other ones. And so knowledge is therefore per perspectival, which is not to say that he necessarily welcomes or admonishes it, but I think that he's just giving us a, a general um, diagnosis of the situation that we perhaps have always found ourselves in as humans after knowledge was constructed. So knowledge is what comes before truth for Nietzsche, but that it's always geared towards that truth, signaling the relationship between them, between knowledge and truth. So there can be a knowledge before truth, and there is no guarantee that a truth will, will be discovered by knowledge. So you need a knowledge to take off the person's mask to find truth. Knowledge is the way to access truth, which you might not find, actually. Uh, but nevertheless, knowledge was still deployed. So Nietzsche, I mean, to be totally frank, Nietzsche isn't totally clear in the way that he characterizes knowledge coming before truth. Is it, is it a will? guided by a desire to to reveal or to to demystify is this is how he, is this how he's characterizing knowledge or maybe knowledge is driven by bodily need for preservation for growth you know sustenance but if this is the case there's no room for will and passion because you're all you're doing is operating at the level of your basic bodily instincts there's no room for you to be like i want this for, you know, for other reasons, for a lack of useless usefulness, as Aristotle might say. And so we are confronted with these, these issues within Nietzsche, when Nietzsche is a stubbornly um, opaque writer, where it can be quite difficult to ascertain his stance about something. It can be difficult to really, really swim through all of the varying arguments and all of the varying observations that he gives us. But in any case, as long as we hold these questions or these concerns close to us, you know, we can use them to even temper Nietzsche's project, to rein him in a little bit, to identify some of the limitations there or the problems that aren't solved, while also acknowledging, really, what he is bringing to the table, identifying knowledge's attachment, not to necessarily the truth of the world, but to power. In either case, though, knowledge describes a relationship between a subject and an object, for Nietzsche, even if we don't know exactly how this knowledge uh, comes about. So we see then that knowledge is about a relationship between, a lot of the time, between humans and the world. Of course, it applies between humans and other humans, but for probably the majority of it, you know, especially philosophically, it is describing a relationship between humanity and the world, or between knowledge and chaos. Because if you really think about it, which is something I hate saying because it's implying that, you know, I'm being coy. Uh, I'm just assuming you think about this the same way I do. But if you were to actually engage with the world, 
it is incredibly arbitrary. Uh, it's just random occurrences are, seem to run supreme, um, and not so random occurrences as well, for that matter. Our guiding impulses seem to not always be geared toward the most beneficial route. We seem to take the path of most resistance a lot of the time. We um, do not distribute resources in ways that make sense. So much of the world is just living in abject poverty. Wars, just absolutely disgusting um, events in human history that go on very much to this day. So any effort to try and find an ordering to the world that brackets off human perception and human knowledge, or not knowledge, but human perception, is imposing an ordering upon the world. It's not finding an ordered world. It is imposing an ordering onto that world. So in trying to find meaning in the world and an ordering, we are less doing that than we are imposing a desire to have the world comply with what we believe to be virtuous elements of human existence, be living in a, a moderate um, and organized life, one that, you know, where the boat isn't rocked too much, where things are neat. So we very much impose this upon the world because that's certainly not what the world is actually like. But Foucault inserts himself here to say that even the distinction between an observer and an observed, between a subject and an object, already complies with a certain historical period or with certain historical factors. Because, you know, what we actually end up seeing for Foucault is that the subject-object relationship is not the foundation of knowledge, but is actually produced by it. Knowledge is actually dependent on a network of relations. So there needed to be at some point a careful, not, not so much deliberate, but a careful uh, emergence of an idea about the association between knowledge, truth, and humanity, and the world. And this needed to become a dominant idea to such an extent as to naturalize a distinction between observing, observing subjects and observed objects to confirm those beliefs about the connection between truth, uh, knowledge, the world, and humanity. But for Nietzsche, you know, this doesn't exist, right? So that, you know, such relations are unknowable in themselves because they exist in a world that has no knowledge and is only comprised of the chaos of sensations for Nietzsche. So knowledge exerts itself on these differences to shape them into something coherent and stable, to make them ordered. And therefore, we have the will to power, a desire to order the world, to make sense of it. And so is born the subject who wills and the object that is being organized by a will, by a will, by a desire, you know, being molded and shaped to it. So knowledge is then the creator of the illusion of knowledge, which might seem interesting to, or might seem weird to say. But what I mean by that is that knowledge is the product of a certain series of events that attributed value to knowledge. So it is a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but over time it began to gain more and more prominence, more and more um, faith that it was it was correct, and so uh, knowledge itself becomes synonymous with knowledge as truth. So we see here that the subject-object relation comes out of it as well. 
Now, Foucault suggests that there might be a way to organize knowledge in such a way as to not be tethered to a subject-object relation, but maybe there's a way that knowledge could exist that embraces what he calls the plurality of relations without subject or object, where there's a different way to organize knowledge. And this is really like, in his short text, The Subject and Power, he says straight out that his primary concern throughout his work, like all of his texts, has been to understand the emergence of subjects and throughout the course of human history, how subjects emerged. And so he is imagining that subjects emerged out of a, out of a certain historical shift in the way that knowledge was constructed and understood as being a matter of observing a world that needed to be ordered, needed to be grappled with, understood. How this turn to this ordering, this desire to order, actually created the conditions for a new kinds or new kinds of social arrangements where people could easily be subordinated and controlled versus others. Whereas he is imagining that in different circumstances, knowledge could have been in relation to an acceptance of these plurality of relations without subject or object, where he says that in such a world, it would be connaissance freed from the subject-object relation, and that would be savoir where we would see then a move away from connaissance that imposes or expects you to know these tacit secret rules of conduct because you know exactly that you're about to walk into a, a relationship or walk into a room or a dynamic in which there are these power relations and you just accept how you are going to act in that situation. Whereas Foucault is perhaps imagining here a world in which there is an, a, an organization around savoir that doesn't impose these rules, but just engages with the circulation of facts, the circulation of ideas, not just uh, not hidden rules that are going to coordinate you, that are going to dictate what you can and cannot say or do. Now, as far as the will to truth goes, it is a procedure to identify a truth that is free, that just exists in the world. And so the will must be free to access it. And this is, this is largely the case in the history of philosophy. For Nietzsche, however, freedom doesn't encapsulate the will to truth. Violence does. Where if someone is really free in the world, they do things that do not comply with the, you know, what the ancient Greeks thought about truth. Uh, they, they will do heinous, horrible things. And so if there is any truth, it is that the world is chaotic Humans are violent and seek only power. Uh, and, and, you know, we can assert other things here, but the point is that for Nietzsche, uh, truth is not true. Insofar as truth has been understood to be this calm, organizational uh, effort to try to unveil the mysteries of the universe. Truth is not true. It is not that. It is illusion as a, a mode of thought. And so this is why Nietzsche looks at the history of truth where it shouldn't technically exist unless it weren't, wasn't true. And that's the realm of appearances. So Nietzsche is interested in the masks that we wear to cover other masks, not to cover a true thing. So truth makes appearance appear as illusion, as error, as lie. And so really the difference between Aristotle and Nietzsche should be apparent now. For Aristotle, knowledge is part of what is meant to be human like with sensations. For Nietzsche, knowledge is it's just a big illusion. The task of a good truth is to embrace 
becoming. Embrace possibility to find that there is no truth that we can just settle on under the mask. Instead, there's another game, new appearances, new rules that we can engage with, that we can challenge, that we can negotiate. And that's where the fun lies. I mean, if there was any way to characterize humanity, I think that that would be a closer way to uh, doing it than to say that there's this, you know, we just got to work hard enough and we'll arrive at a truth and we'll all agree and everything will be happy. It'd be a scary world in which we've all just agreed upon things. And that puts us here into week three. So we're going back to the beginning. Now we're continuing on uh, as usual through the rest of the book. So his concern here, that is Foucault's concern here, is to gauge if there is a way to break from the tradition that posits connaissance to be primary. You know, again, we just use the term knowledge, but he's talking here about connaissance to be primary and the condition of subject-object relations that we, now you probably understand why I had to talk about week 13 before talking about week three. Uh, and to find out why uh, connaissance attaches itself to these subject-object relations or gives birth to them. Now, he opposes this to savoir, which is treated as only singular instances of knowledge in the broader apparatus of connaissance. Because Foucault isn't saying there aren't like facts or things that happen in the world or people agree or disagree upon things. His concern is more in the formation of a type of knowledge that allows little mobility, that just says, you must act this way. You must think this way. This is, this is the truth of humanity. It's in your sensations. It's in X, Y, Z, other things. And you have to just accept that. Foucault is totally not satisfied with that, those explanations of what it means to be human. So to do this, to think about the distinction between savoir and connaissance, he focuses on the way that the sophists were presented and excluded to establish this primacy of connaissance. So to be, I mean, you know, there's in ancient Greek philosophy, there's this hatred of the sophists as just people who peddle in lies and just try to make a profit off of lies. Whereas Socrates, Plato, Aristotle were engaging in truth. And what Foucault is going to go to go on to do here is to show that, I mean, if you actually engage with their arguments between Plato and the sophists or between Socrates and the sophists, you find that they're actually, all their arguments can be reduced to uh, falsity to some extent. I mean, no one of them can claim to be epistemically or um, in terms of knowledge more superior than the other. So he begins by looking at Aristotle's exclusion of the sophists. When Aristotle writes that as for sophistic, it is only a sophistic reasoning. It is only an apparent philosophy without reality. So what does this mean? What, is it, what does it say that the sophistic philosophy, this philosophy of the sophists, is only apparent philosophy, not the real thing? Well, we must first establish what philosophy is, like a proper philosophy is for Aristotle and those before and after him. So philosophy and its relationship with truth can be summarized in four points for Aristotle. Like these are the primary um, characterizers, characteristics of philosophy. Firstly, philosophers are defined and distinguished by their uh, having grasped certain causes, primary natures, substances on earth, and in mind. Second, it is not satisfied with final solutions if a problem arises. Third, philosophy is concerned with principles of things, that is, being, 
in itself or being itself. And fourthly, it emerges not out of need, but out of wonder. In short, philosophy is a path to truth. But if we accept these four characteristics of what philosophy is, that is, uh, they have to have grasped certain primary natures, some truths already to have conducted philosophy, they need to have not be satisfied with final solutions, they need to uh, be concerned with the principles of things like being itself, and uh, it has to emerge out of wonder, we then must ask ourselves, why are there still disagreements among so-called real philosophers? Because Plato and Aristotle are not always in agreement, uh, definitely not. Uh, I don't even know if um, you know Plato and Socrates would be, even though Socrates could very well have been a creation, Plato's creation. So Aristotle suggests that the way we can understand why there are disagreements among philosophers, it is because they are putting their minds to work without direction. The philosopher must treat these above characteristics as a guide for the science of philosophy. And there's a point somewhere, I think, or I dream this, where Foucault writes that, or says, that philosophy begins with Aristotle. And part of the reason for that is that Aristotle wasn't just concerned with talking about pure abstractions or locating truth among abstractions, but was interested in the real material world and the truths that can be gleaned from it, which is really how Foucault conducts philosophy, uh, but is very much like the way that um, how, how Foucault characterizes Aristotle here. So Aristotle says that uh, these four characteristics must be used as a guide for proper, uh, for the science of philosophy, science of philosophy being its conduct in kind of material sense in the world. So we all have truth within us, but without direction, we can't put it to use. Because remember, for Aristotle, we all have truth. We are all potential philosophers because we all want to pursue knowledge because it's embedded in our uh, sensations, the fact that we can have experiences in the world. So in that sense, according to Aristotle, we then all have connaissance because there are these tacit secret rules. They are that, uh, you know, we must comply with the object of nature in, our, in ourselves that, you know, we um, can have pleasure, we can experience pleasure without any use. And because of that, we are guided by a singular pursuit of knowledge, which is that being a secret rule isn't like a fact in the world that we can disagree or talk about or exchange about. It's just a rule that just governs who we are. So it belongs to that domain of connaissance. So no matter what, the philosopher will be ensconced in truth. I mean, we are all potential philosophers, even if what we say is not always true, or even if they say the truth, it might not be the whole truth for, uh, for it is difficult to say if it is ever complete. So it's weird, like having said all this, it's weird to understand or difficult to understand how the sophist is excluded because the sophist is a human. They therefore belong to the same realm of connaissance of that kind of knowledge of being, you know, having these rules according to their um, own drive for knowledge because they feel things in the world. It's difficult to say why the sophist is excluded here. And even in some of Aristotle's texts, like sophistical refutations, Aristotle goes so far as to like totally disembody them, to depersonify them, which is almost like 
Aristotle's way of being like, oh, the only way around my claims is to make it seem as though sophists aren't human. So therefore, my rules don't apply to them. And to just say things that like sophistry is just bad arguments or trickery. There's nothing of value there. So why should philosophy care about sophistry if it is not philosophy? Like why, why does philosophy even concern itself? With the sophists why does it even listen why doesn't it just send them on their way and that be it i mean that's what a philosophy would like to do but in any case moreover though why is it associated with a morally unsavory character to be a sophist why is that seen as being bad in a moral sense for aristotle and plato now the difference between a sophist and an ignorant person is that an ignorant person will deploy easily recognizable faulty reasoning to arrive at a conclusion that may be true. So for example, uh, you know, you could just be wrong about something and then that's that. Like I could say something like, leaves are shoes and therefore birds fly, which makes no sense. Like there's no, it's just, I may as well be drunk on a stool somewhere. Like I, I just made no sense to you. It's not like I'm employing logic and reason to offer an argument i said i said gibberish essentially or you know they can they could even say something that is true like for example birds can fly therefore dogs don't have bad breath or at least the conclusion is false like that birds can fly but that doesn't have anything to do with dogs and their breath and moreover that you know we know that dogs likely have bad breath so this person would just be like not even worth listening to like there's no way to get around that for aristotle right like this would just be an ignorant person no value there on the other hand the sophist is someone who appears to use proper reason to arrive at correct conclusions so it, it all appears right and they will likely do it for money or fame which is kind of how aristotle is like that's how you can tell when they're they're not legitimate they're just doing it for the money so some of the tactics used by sophists would include, include talking fast, hiding key questions and ideas, saying things that can't be verified, etc., etc. Uh, and so they don't manipulate things in the world. They really manipulate manipulate language, which we're going to see is the difference between the two is can be difficult to uh, figure out. But if you think back to the last episode, or you think about the way that Foucault presented issues about Aristotle's philosophy really, you know, in a very philosophical way and very methodical way, it's hard to see how Aristotle himself can't be situated among the sophists. I mean, he said things that can't be verified that uh, followed along an enthymeme, like a type of reasoning in which it is just assumed that certain ideas are, are held, that like um, humans, uh, their desire for knowledge is somehow connected to their ability to have sensation, which is like, that's a very big leap, but he just says it as though it's true, which is what he says here, or what Foucault says Aristotle is saying is a characteristic quality of the sophist. So why is it that some knowledges can be considered legitimate, some philosophy legitimate and others not? So one of the issues that Aristotle has, or one of the characteristics of a sophist for Aristotle, is that they'll use words and manipulate those words. But this is really just part, partly due to the fact that language is limited. Uh, so, so you got to use the same words for different things. 
And the really big, good example from Plato that Derrida picks up on is pharmacon, where pharmacon means either a poison or a cure, or a word like knowledge in English that in French can mean two different things. I mean, it means savoir or connaissance, which are two very different things. Yet in, in this language, we just see it as being one where we just collapse them into one word. Is that a sign that English people are somehow being sophistical? They are just using uh, sophist arguments, uh, whereas in the case of French, it's more legitimate. I mean, that'd be a very weird way to interpret this, and it would just submit one illusion for another. The point being, of course, that it's just Foucault says that it's weird to say that this is like what sophists do. Like they just play with language when it's like we're, we always play with language. And then he goes into a number of examples of so-called sophistical arguments, arguments by sophists. And I'm not going to go into each one because there's lots of them. I'll just give you a couple uh, just to kind of what do you give you? Yeah, one, I think. <laughs> but in any case, you'll get the idea. So there's like, for example, there's the sophism of permutation. So that would go, the type of reasoning would look like this. Socrates is white, skin color white. Whether or not he was, actually, sidebar, uh, probably not. But in any case, Socrates is white. White is a color. Therefore, Socrates is a color. You know, I've said things that are true. I've said Socrates is white. White is a color. Therefore, Socrates is a color. And this is just, you know, Socratic reasoning, right? A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. And Aristotle is like, see, this is why they can't be taken seriously. They use these uh, modes of false reasoning. It's just not legitimate. So, so sophistry for Aristotle appears as a free-floating enterprise with little concern for consistency and coherent methods. Real things are subordinated to the words that can be tampered with. So for Aristotle, he believes that his words are more legitimate because they're more attached to real things, real ideas. Whereas sophists don't, apparently just don't care about real things or real ideas. They're only concerned with uh, the manipulating words, which they feel then to be a way to actually manipulate real things. So what actually happens is that the sophists mess up, the sophists, the sophists defile the ideal reality of logos. Logos being the true word, real word, word of God in some translations. Like depends, like being the direct attachment between a word and an idea where there's no ambiguity. They perfectly mirror one another. And that puts us here into week four in which we're just going to con continue on the same line of reasoning here, the same thought process. So against Aristotle, Foucault doesn't want to try and reintegrate the sophist into philosophy. He wants to maintain the gap. Like he doesn't want to just bring the sophist in because you can't do that. Philosophy, in the way that it is historically constructed, does not permit that. And so he is more considered, more considered, more concerned with the way that sophists exist in such a setting and why and how they are excluded. So when we actually think about it, though, the real philosophy uses many of the same tactics as the sophists. Like I already said, A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. And here we see signs take on a material form, like as though I can use words to describe things in the world. But Aristotle just says that his words are more legitimate than someone else's words, someone else's language. 
And then to get around this, you know, he does Aristotle does one of many things. He'll say that, oh, well, you know, proper philosophy is guided by rules that the sophists are not interested in, yada, yada, yada. And only he seems to be privy to these rules. And the rules that he lays out are by no means clear. So, like, what we're seeing here is the way in which humanity has been less interested in finding out, a, you know, a real truth, if that can be said to exist, and more interested in imposing an idea about what that truth is or what knowledge is. So sophistry seems to be only about whether one can be persuasive in their manipulation of language. So sophists treat every utterance as its own event, as its own game, with its own rules. And that's because apparently sophists have mastered language, and they see it as a way to acquire truth. Whereas for Aristotle, language is not in itself a way to acquire truth, only if it perfectly mirrors uh, so-called objective reality in the world, real things in the world, real ideas, and then it can be used as a tool to propel us towards truth. It is not truth itself. Now, Foucault further breaks this down to show that truth and false is the same as agreed or disagreed, that being and non-being is the same as said and not said, and that contradictory and non-contradictory is the same as rejected or not rejected. Where it seems like with Aristotle, he might not be saying the same thing if the sophists were agreeing with him. It becomes then less about a matter of the sophists saying things that are untrue, as the sophists are saying things that Aristotle does not agree with. Now, Foucault specifies what the opposite to sophistical discourse is, or sorry, Aristotle does, or I guess Foucault as well, in really reading this in Aristotle. And that is what is called apophantic discourse, or declarative speech, where declarative speech is conducted in such a way as to already imply a subject-object relation. So, like, I am saying something, you are listening, and you better agree with me, and I say it with a kind of authority that is going to be taken up and agreed with. And so there is little ambiguity or little room to interrogate the attachment of those words with truth with the things they are meant to represent in the world. So we just take them to be true, and therefore it appears to be closer to truth. Whereas the sophist is just seen as manipulating words to uh, realize their own desires, their own wants, their own ends. So this kind of speech, declarative speech, which is also called apophantic discourse against, which is, runs against sophist uh, discourse, this speech is firmly connected with truth because it, it is non-contradictory uh, in the sense that it says that which it is and that which is not is not. Or it says that which is and it says that which is not is not. It's a lot of words. In the declarative form, there is no room to establish rules of discursive conduct. Everything must already comply with laws of language. Here we see connaissance rear its head again and its relationship to being and truth that we all implicitly know to be true. You know, these secret rules that Aristotle seems to know, but is not totally clear about. And it is this opposition that sets the stage for what would become Western philosophy and Western science. And now I'll stop there, and next time we're going to take up from week five uh, and continue on this very interesting route. 
But yeah, if you made it this far, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you were able to get something out of it. Anything I got wrong, uh, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. You can leave comments on the YouTube videos. You can leave questions in a review on a, you know, a podcast platform. You can leave five stars if you want. That'd be great. It'd help me out a lot. Yeah. That note, take care.